You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Our Father, we thank You for the grace of giving us Your Word, that it is to us a light and a guide, and it is our rock. It is the revelation of You and Your will and who You are, and we pray that as a result of looking into it that we may be conformed into the likeness of Christ and that You would sanctify us by Your truth. We commit this time to You today and pray that the Spirit of God may be our teacher, and that Your Word would be our rule. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah. I'll sit down and we'll sing some more songs while you find that book. If you're familiar with where the book of Jonah is at, you can ask an Awana child near you. and They memorize the order of the books and they will help you find it. You'll find it among the last 12 books of your Old Testament. 12 books that we refer to as the Minor Prophets. Not because they were insignificant prophets, some of them very significant, but because they are shorter books than what we call the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah, and Daniel. So if you are able to find Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, or Daniel, you just keep turning to the right and you'll pass Hosea, and Joel, and Amos, and then a wonderful little book named Obadiah, and then you will arrive at Jonah. Is everybody there? Okay. You should be at the book of Jonah. This is going to be the next book that we study. And I have been asked, uh, you, you may be asking yourself, why Jonah? Why leave Philippians and do the book of Jonah? There's a few different reasons. First of all, it has been quite a while since we have taken, undertaken an Old Testament book to preach through. We were 18 months in Philippians, and before that we were three and a half years in the book of Acts, and before that we were 18 months in the book of First Peter. So that's six and a half years that I've spent preaching through New Testament books, and so I figured it is time to maybe jump back into the Old Testament and take up a small Old Testament book. Just sort of a short little break. And this will also serve as a change of flavor because it's a different type of book than we've studied in the New Testament. Jonah is a very unique book. And another reason why I'm taking this up is because many people have asked, Jim, when are you going to preach through an Old Testament book and why not do one of the Minor Prophets? We enjoyed the Minor Prophets when you did. Went through the Minor Prophets. Why not take another one? Now, Granted, those people are all just the voices in my head, but they do ask those questions. And just because they don't exist doesn't mean that they're not important. They're much like Cook County, Illinois voters. Just because many of them don't exist doesn't mean their votes shouldn't count. Right, Thomas? Right. So that's why we're tackling the book of Jonah. Um, I'm, I will confess to you right up front, there is, <laughs> there is nothing in the book of Jonah that is going to take you by surprise. Because if you've spent more than six months in Sunday school or ever attended a vacation Bible school, you've heard the book of Jonah, you've heard the story of Jonah, and probably most of it. So over the course of the next few weeks, none of you are going to be sitting on the edge of your seat and coming back week after week saying to yourself, what's going to happen during the storm? Is Jonah going to survive? And now is he going to live through the fish? And is Nineveh going to repent? What's going to happen? You're not going to do any of that because you're familiar with the story and sort of it's all old hat for you. There are some twists and turns, and the, the story does take sort of some humorous angles and, and a few unexpected twists and turns, and we'll sort of dig through that as we go through the book of Jonah. But what we're going to be looking at that I think is going to be very engaging for us is not just the story itself, 
but the theology behind the story. All of you are probably familiar with the story of Jonah, but I doubt if any of you have sat down with the book of Jonah and opened it up and wrestled through the theological issues which are behind the narrative. There are things that you have to, if you're going to seriously study the book, there are questions that you're going to have to grapple with. And we're going to address some of these. Let me give you an idea of what some of them are. We're going to answer the question, are the events in the book of Jonah really historical? Did they actually happen? Because of all the Old Testament books, of all the books of the whole Bible, actually, Jonah is probably held up for ridicule and mockery more than any other book. And skeptics and atheists and agnostics love to say, you don't honestly believe that a man was swallowed by a big fish and that he survived three days and three nights in the belly of that fish, do you? To which you can say, you don't honestly believe that all of the complexity and order around you was the result of a random explosion in the middle of space without any designer or complex organizer, do you? You can say that to them. But we are going to deal with the issue of, are these historical events? Did these things actually really happen? Now, spoil the ending for you. Yes, they are historical events. Yes, they did actually happen. But we're going to wrestle through that as we go through some of the supernatural, phenomenal, and miraculous events in the book of Jonah. But another theological issue that's going to come up is we're going to see in the book of Jonah the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man played out for us in a narrative. And what do I mean by that? In the book of Jonah, God is presented as sovereign. Sovereign over the storm, sovereign over the sea, sovereign over the sea creatures, sovereign over cities and kings and nations and rulers, and sovereign over a worm, and sovereign over a plant, and sovereign over even a rebellious prophet that does not want to do God's will. And so here's the question. When God wants to get His will accomplished, can He make even the rebellion of man accomplish His will? His sovereign will? Can He? He makes the wrath of man to praise Him, the Bible says. So we're going to see how a sovereign God who wants to accomplish an end will use even somebody who's committed to not doing that end, how God will even use that to get it done. It's a marvelous play in the book of Jonah. Another thing that comes up is the question of God's justice and His mercy. You see, this is, this is the theme all the way through the book of Jonah. And the, the question is this. How can God be just and at the same time, pardon the guilty. How can God do that? Is it not criminal for a just judge to let a criminal go free? How can God in righteousness forgive those wicked Ninevites and pardon all of their sin just because they repented and just because they acknowledged their wrong? And God forgives all of it. Is it just and righteous for God to be just or for God to justify or declare innocent the guilty sinner, and to pardon them. You see, you and I have no problem with God's mercy and His compassion as long as it's exercised toward us. But it's when God does that toward the other guy, that's where we have a problem with it. That's where it gets in our craw. And that's what you see happening in the book of Jonah. You see Jonah wrestling with this issue. How can God be just and forgive the Ninevites? And then another theological question that comes up out of all of that in the book of Jonah is, is it really God's will when bad things happen? Because here's something you have to keep in mind. The, Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Assyria was the nation that lived to the north of the northern kingdom of Israel. And less than 70 years, probably closer to 40 or 50 years, after Jonah went to Nineveh and preached, and they repented and God spared that nation, less than 50 years later, that nation came in and conquered the northern kingdom took them captive and destroyed them and punished God's people. 
Now, why would God pardon the people and spare a city that He knows is going to come in and destroy His people? Is that really the sovereign will of God when bad things happen like that? That's a tough one, isn't it? And a fifth one, and this is a little bit more lighthearted, and that is the question of the false prophecy or apparent false prophecy in the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Was it? That was his prophecy. Was Nineveh overthrown? It wasn't. It was spared. So is that a false prophecy? Now, that's something we have to wrestle through because if you ever talk about uh, the issue of prophecy with Jehovah's Witness, they will throw out the book of Jonah to you. And I've done this on more than one occasion. In talking with Jehovah's Witness, I'll say, look, your organization, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, claims to be God's spokesman, claims to be God's prophetic voice to people and the dispenser of all truth. And yet, your organization has predicted the return of Christ no less than a dozen different times over the course of the last 150 years, and they've been wrong every single time. Now, how can an organization that claims to speak for God and be God's prophetic voice, his prophetic spokesman, how can they be wrong in giving prophecies about the return of Christ? And you know what a Jehovah's Witness will say? They will take you right to the book of Jonah and they will say, even Jonah was a false prophet because he predicted that Nineveh would be overthrown and it wasn't overthrown. And so Jonah goes to show us that even God's spokesmen can, spokesmen can get it wrong sometimes. They can make mistakes and even utter false prophecies. And is that a false prophecy? Well, we'll deal with it when we get to chapter 3, verse 4. But those are some of the theological issues that we're going to wrestle with. Those, that's the theology behind the story. The book of Jonah is not just about a fish and a prophet and a rebellious city and a rebellious prophet and Jonah going to preach to those people. The book of Jonah is all about the nature and the character of God, His love for the nations, His love for people, and His desire to see people saved. That's what the book of Jonah is about. So we're going to look at the God who is behind the narrative and not just the details of the story. The details of the story are instructive enough. But we want to dig in a little bit deeper and see who is this God who is behind the book of Jonah. So that should be enough to keep you from sort of kicking back and yawning and saying, well, I'll take the next 12, 13, 14 months, weeks off and uh, come back, and it won't be months, and come back when something is a little bit more interesting and engaging. There's plenty in the book of Jonah that I think will keep our minds and our hearts engaged. So let's look at the who, what, where, when, and why of the book of Jonah, just by way of introduction today. First of all, the who. You see, the author of the book is given in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and then he gets his instructions. We'll stop at the end of verse 1. I'm going to ask you to flip to a couple other places in your Bible this morning, but I want you to see jo- Jonah is the son of a man named Amittai. Now, Jonah, the name Jonah means dove. There's no theological significance to that whatsoever. Don't take it and allegorize it or try and spiritualize it. That's just in case you ever be in a Bible, you're in a, ever in a Bible trivia game and you need to know the name of the book of Jonah. It's Jonah and his name means dove. His father's name, Amittai, means truthful. Jonah was a legendary prophet and a very respected and revered prophet among the Jews, even in Jesus' day. They revered Jonah. And you can see this even in the New Testament. Peter, do you remember Peter's name? Simon Bar, what? Jonah. Very possible that Peter's father was named after Jonah the prophet. Jonah was revered in Jesus' day by the Jews, so much so that legend has crept in about Jonah. And what I'm about to tell you has no basis in Scripture whatsoever, but this is some of the legend that's attached to this character. The Jews believe, or at least the legend among the Jews in Judaism, is that Jonah was the son of the Zarephath widow that Elijah stayed with, in 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 8, that he was the son, 1 Kings 17, verse 8 through 24, that he was the son of that widow of Zarephath. 
You remember the story It was during the famine and the whole nation was under the judgment of God because of the famine. And Elijah was told to go to the house of the widow of Zarephath. And he went there and she had the oil and the flour and she made the cakes. And she had that one son. Elijah stayed with her. And through a miraculous, providential, supernatural miracle of God, neither the oil nor the flour ran out. So she was able to make bread for Elijah and for her son and for herself and live all the way through that famine. And toward the end of 1 Kings chapter 17, her son dies, and Elijah goes in and resurrects her son from the dead, raises him back to life. Well, the legend among the Jews is that that son was Jonah. Probably no basis in historical fact whatsoever, but it does do this. It does put for us Jonah in a chronological and historical context because that is the time at which Jonah lived. Is it that period of time? So don't get caught up in the legend, but just understand that's how the Jews revere Jonah as a prophet. Now, some people will say, how do you know that Jonah was the author of the book of Jonah? Because he does speak in the third person, right? He does say Jonah did this and Jonah did that and he did this. He never says, I got swallowed by a fish. I was running away from the presence of the Lord. I got vomited back up onto dry land. I went to Nineveh. He never refers to himself in the first person. So how can we be certain that it's Jonah that wrote the book? I would argue two things. Number one, just because he speaks in the third person doesn't mean he can't be describing himself. The Jews... Moses did this, Joshua did this, other Old Testament prophets did this all the time. They would give a personal narrative and they would speak in the, and write in the third person. It was a customary way of doing things. Second, the details in the book of Jonah, all of them, have the earmark or have the characteristic of being first, a first-hand account of Jonah himself. So there's no reason to believe that anybody other than Jonah wrote the book, and there's no reason to believe that the book was written hundreds or thousands of years after the supposed events took place. It wasn't. It was written by Jonah himself about the time of Elijah and Elisha, the prophets. So that answers the who question. Now, what about the where? You may be surprised to find, and I was, that the book of Jonah is not the only place in the Bible where Jonah is mentioned. And you're probably thinking of New Testament references, but there is an Old Testament reference to Jonah as well that helps plug us, helps plug, helps us plug him into a historical context. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 14 and keep your finger in the book of Jonah because we're going to come back there and I'm going to give you an outline of that book. But I want you to see some details that the author of 2 Kings gives us in 2 Kings chapter 14. We'll begin reading in verse 23. In the fifteenth year, I'll wait till somebody's. We're all done turning there. Sorry. Pages are done rustling. Here we go. In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, this is verse twenty-three. Son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned forty-one years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. Now you see that? So there's Jonah mentioned. His father is mentioned too. He's called the son of Amittai. This is the historical time in which Jonah preached. He preached and he was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now some of you may be wondering, okay, King Jeroboam, where does he fit in the whole chronology how does Jeroboam fit in? Is he before or after David? How does that work? Let me give you the brief historical overview. Saul was the first king of the United Kingdom. Not the United Kingdom the way we have the United Kingdom today, but the United Kingdom of Israel. There's no United Kingdom as in England. Never mind. 
So he was the first king of Israel, of the king as it was un- kingdom as it was united before it was divided. We'll get to the divided part in just a second. So follow me here. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jim, you missed your true calling. You should have been a history teacher. It only gets better. Saul was the first king, then David, and then Solomon. At the end of the reign of Solomon, the kingdom was divided into the northern kingdom, which had ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, which had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom had a series of kings, beginning with Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who did wickedness in the sight of the Lord. And no king after Jeroboam the first, that's Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, no king did good. No king was good out of all of the kings that Israel had. That kingdom was begun in an act of rebellion against the throne of David, and it never departed from its rebellion to the Lord after that. And so they had a series of kings after that, and the southern kingdom had some good kings and some bad kings. They had some ups and downs and some revivals and things like that, but the northern kingdom never did. It was locked in apostasy almost from the moment of that division between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, in their series of kings, they began with Jeroboam, son of Nebat. That was Jeroboam the first. Years later was Jeroboam the second, the son of Joash, who is the Jeroboam mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 14. That's Jeroboam the second. That's why the author says Jeroboam the second, that is the son of Joash, never departed from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. In other words, he never departed from those sins. He just continued the same type of idolatry that had been part of the nation of Israel as a whole ever since the beginning. The son, Jeroboam II reigned from 793-ish to 753-ish. Now, ish is a technical term that means within a year or two because a lot of times ancient historical dates, depending on how they date things, is a little bit sketchy. So I don't want to confuse you with all the technical terminology, but ish is sort of shorthand for about that. 793 to 753. So you're talking about the end, the middle to the end of the 8th century B.C. Now, keep in mind, as I always have to do, that when you're going back, you're actually counting forward. Or when you're, when you're before B.C., you're actually going, as you're going forward, you're counting backwards. Or if you go backwards, you count forward, however that works. I know, history teacher is my calling. So, 8th century, 800 years before Christ, almost to 800 is when Jonah lived. So, the events of the book of Jonah are probably 760, 770, 780, 790, somewhere in that window. Because Jonah doesn't date his book. They didn't do that back then. But we can date Jonah from what the Bible tells us when he lived. And he would have lived back then. Now let me give you some contemporaries of Jonah. Some of his contemporaries would have been the prophet Hosea. Hosea and Amos both lived at the same time that Jonah lived. Probably would have known each other. Probably would have known each other and been familiar with each other. Hosea, Amos, Jonah... And those three guys would have lived around the same time or toward the end of what was called that prophetic era, which would have been under Elijah and Elisha. As you read through 1 Kings and 2 Kings, you get the ministries of Elijah and Elisha and all the supernatural things that went on there. Very likely that Jonah would have known at least Elisha, if not Elijah. Uh, some people have suggested that Jonah was one of what they called the sons of the prophets in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. He would have been somebody that was trained by Elisha himself because the prophets back then ran schools. Possible that Jonah was one of those prophets. Possible. I can't bank anything on that, but that's a possibility. So that's sort of the historical time frame in which we're dealing with. At the same time, the nation of Assyria is gaining in power and influence under their different kings. And I'm not going to get into all of the historical things with Assyria just now because we'll get into that as we sort of make our way through the book. I don't want to do a historical dump on you because you can tell that I'm obviously very adept at history. 
So we'll wait till we get into the book of Kings before we start looking at some of the history of Assyria. So that's who and that's when. Now, what about where? Where did Jonah come from? The answer is in 2 Kings chapter 14. Look at verse 25. Oh, 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 one thing I forgot to point out with the when. Or maybe this was supposed to be later. I don't know when. But here we go. Jonah was a respected prophet and a successful prophet under Jeroboam because you notice in 2 Kings chapter 14 it says that Jeroboam, verse 25, restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah according to the word of the Lord of God which he spoke through his servant Jonah the son of Amittai. So not all of Jonah's prophetic ministry is contained in the book of Jonah. He had predicted that this king Jeroboam would expand the borders of Israel out to a certain point and the king did that in fulfillment of the word of God through his prophet Jonah. So Jonah had a fulfilled prophecy there in 2 Kings 14. Now what about where? Where did Jonah come from? Look at the end of verse 25 of 2 Kings 14. Uh, The prophet who was of Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer. Nice city, isn't it? You say, where was Gath-Hefer? This is really not significant as pertains to our study of the book of Jonah, but it does have a certain significance because of something in the New Testament Gath-Hefer was in the territory allotted to the tribe of Zebulun. It was very near Nazareth. Now, do we know anybody who came from Nazareth? Jesus did. Gath-Hefer was a small town very close to Nazareth in in an area, a region, that would later be called Galilee. Nazareth was in Galilee. Gath-Hefer was in Galilee. Now, you say, is there a significance to that? There is. Not so much for the study of Jonah itself, But when you get to the New Testament, in the book of John, chapter 7, there is an interesting dialogue that happens. At the Feast of Booths, Jesus is doing some teaching, and the crowds begin to discuss among themselves Jesus' teaching and what He's saying. And some among the crowds say, could this be the prophet? And by that, they're referring to the prophet that Moses predicted, which would rise after him. Because Moses said, the Lord will rise up a prophet just like me from among yourselves later on. And all of the Jews were waiting for the prophet. So in John chapter 7, the crowds say of Jesus, could this be the prophet, the one that Moses spoke of? And others said, no, no, this could be, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Now, who was right? He said both of them were right. Absolutely. Then there was a third contingent among the crowd. And the third contingent among the crowd said, hold on a second. He can't be either the prophet or the Messiah Because if he comes from Nazareth in Galilee, and doesn't the Old Testament say that the Messiah would be of the lineage of David from the town of Bethlehem? Now, were they right? All three of them had it pinned, right? He is the prophet. He is the Messiah. He is the descendant of David. He did come out of Bethlehem, even though he lived in Nazareth after he was born. And he came out of the city of Nazareth. Then some of the Pharisees began in John chapter 7 to discuss this amongst themselves. And Nicodemus, who had come to him by night in John chapter 3, rose up in defense of Jesus. And Nicodemus said, hold on a second. Doesn't our law at least give him a chance to answer for himself? Let him answer himself. We doesn't condemn a man before it hears him. And then the Pharisees said to Nicodemus, you're not from Galilee too, are you? Search the Scriptures and see that no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Was that true? Who came out of Galilee? Jonah came out of Galilee. The Pharisees said he can't be the prophet. He can't be the Messiah because he comes from Galilee. Do you remember what 
Philip, when he came to Nathanael, he said, we have found the one that Moses spoke of in the law and the prophets and all the Old Testament. Jesus of Nazareth, he's the Messiah. And what did Nathanael say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why did Nathanael say that? Because Nazareth was one of those towns that everybody looked down on. Nobody respected it. Nazareth and all of its surrounding towns and villages, the whole region of Galilee, people looked down on it. They weren't respected. It was insignificant. It was overlooked. It was totally underappreciated. It was the Clark Fork of the land of Israel. And before all of the Clark Forkians get upset that I said that, that it is a compliment of sorts. It was completely overlooked. But had good things come out of that area? Absolutely it had. Jesus for one, and Jonah for two. So when the people tried to argue against Jesus' credentials, saying no prophet has ever arisen out of Galilee, that was a, an absolute lie because one of the most revered prophets of all of the Old Testament minor prophets, Jonah himself, had come out of Galilee from gath which is right near Nazareth. So Jesus and Jonah grew up in the same neighborhood, separated by 800 years, but they grew up in the same neighborhood. So that's where he came from. Now, why did Jonah write? Turn back to Second, uh, sorry, not Second Kings, the book of Jonah. I asked you to put your finger in there. Go back to the book of Jonah. Why did Jonah write? Jonah lived at a time in the nation of Israel when spiritual decadence was at its all-time low. Idolatry was rampant. Idolatry was the established practice of the day. The people were prosperous. The people were wealthy. The people were living in peace. The people were happy. The people were content. And the religion was dead. The true religion was dead. And those who were worshiping the true God of Israel were worshiping in a very dry, a very somber, a very emotionless, and a very detached manner. It was very dry. They went to the temple. They went through their rituals. There was no life in it whatsoever. But the people as a whole, the nation of a whole, was very uh, dead spiritually and caught up in idolatry. And it's in that context that Amos writes. It's in that context that Hosea writes. It's in that context that Jonah lived and Jonah writes and Jonah was sent to a foreign nation, a foreign city, the city of Nineveh, with a message of repentance. And that's why Jonah writes. Now, what is in the book of Jonah? Let's answer the question of what. You're counting on your fingers. You know that we're already to the fifth of those five W's that I gave you. What is in the book of Jonah? Jonah is, of all the Old Testament prophets, probably the most unique. And the uniqueness of Jonah can be seen when you begin to compare his book to Hosea or Amos or Daniel or Isaiah or Jeremiah or any one of the other Old Testament prophets. And here's what makes it unique. The book of Jonah is not about the message. The book of Jonah is about the circumstances around the message. When you read Amos, it's all his preaching, prophecy, his prophetic ministry, what he says. The Lord says this. With Jonah, it's not that. The book of Jonah is about the circumstances surrounding the message. It's not so much about the message, but what happens around the message. All the Old Testament prophets, the emphasis was on the preaching and the teaching and the proclamation and the foretelling and what God says. Jonah really only gives one prophetic message in the whole book. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's it. That's all he says, prophetically speaking. And the rest of the book is all about the story around that one message. That's unique. That's different. Another unique thing about the book is its outline. And uh, now I would ask the question or answer the question, Jim, can you give us a cute little quaint outline like you did for Philippians? Can you do that for the book of Jonah? So it makes it all memorable for us. And yes, I can. And yes, I will. So here it is. Here's the book of Jonah. I'm going to give you an outline for the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1 is Jonah at sea. Jonah is at sea. 
And the book of Jonah begins with chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, and he's given a commission. Jonah, here's what I want you to do. Now, Jonah is a rebellious prophet in chapter 1, so we're titling chapter 1, The Rebellious Prophet. The Rebellious Prophet. It's Jonah at sea. Now, chapter 2 is Jonah in the belly of the fish. Chapter 1, Jonah at sea. Chapter 2, Jonah in the belly of the fish. And we titled that chapter 2, The Repentant Prophet. The Repentant Prophet. In chapter 1, he's rebellious. In chapter 2, he's repentant. And listen, the key verse of the book of Jonah is in chapter 2. It is actually a key phrase. It's at the end of verse 9, all the way at the end of Jonah's prayer. And if you look at chapter 2, verse 9, you'll see the key phrase, salvation is from the Lord. That is the key point, the key phrase, the key idea of the whole book of Jonah. That is what Nineveh found out. That is what Jonah had to be schooled in. And that is the ringing key through all of the New Testament and the Old Testament. Salvation is of the Lord. And we'll sort of flesh that out a little bit more when we get to that. Then in Jonah chapter 3, chapter 3 begins with Jonah being, or chapter 2 ends with Jonah being spit out onto dry land. Chapter 3 is his commission all over again. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city. And he's commissioned again. Now in Jonah chapter 1, we had the rebellious prophet. In chapter 2, the repentant prophet. In chapter 3, a very reluctant prophet. He goes to Nineveh. But you know Jonah doesn't want to be at Nineveh. And he's there very reluctantly, but obediently. So we titled chapter 3, The Reluctant Prophet, that's Jonah in Nineveh. Then in chapter 4, we have Jonah with God, or Jonah before God. And there we have in chapter 4, The Resentful Prophet. I knew, he says, gritting his teeth, that if I went there, you would show compassion. And he resents it. He resents the fact that salvation that is of the Lord reached Nineveh. So in chapter 1, Jonah at sea. In chapter 2, Jonah and the fish. In chapter 3, Jonah at Nineveh. Chapter 4 is Jonah with God. Chapter 1, the rebellious prophet. Chapter 2, the repentant prophet. Chapter 3, the reluctant prophet. In chapter 4, the resentful, thank you very much, the resentful prophet of chapter 4. I knew what it was. I was just testing you to make sure that you were writing it down. Now, one last thing we have to deal with before we leave the book of Jonah, and it's this question, and this is the one that comes up on everybody's minds when you're dealing with Jonah. Isn't this just a big story, allegory, myth, or legend told to sort of illustrate a bigger point? Right? Isn't Jonah an allegory? Or did these events actually happen and occur? Jim, do you really believe that a man was swallowed by a whale? I'll tell you right now, I don't believe that. I believe he was swallowed by a big fish. Because that's what the text says. It doesn't say whale, it says great fish. I believe everything that is written in the book, as it happened, no allegory. Listen, allegory is never, never a proper biblical interpretive tool. Never. You want allegory? Read the Chronicles of Narnia. But stay away from your Bible. Don't go looking through your Bible for allegory. You're never going to find a single word of allegory in all of the Scripture. It is historical fact. It happened as it says it happened. Now, some people will try and spiritualize Jonah and say, no, 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 no. Jonah and all of the details of the story are actually just sort of things that we single out and we need to sort of attach a spiritual significance to them and find what Jonah is really getting at. As if he was too stupid to communicate what he was really getting at. But we need to look beyond the details of the story to what Jonah was really getting at. So they'll say this. Jonah represents the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel was in rebellion. So that's why Jonah was a rebellious prophet. 
So Jonah represents the nation of Israel. Israel was in rebellion. And Israel was at a time of great chaos. That's the storm of the sea. Great chaos. Political chaos, turmoil, upset, economic chaos, spiritual chaos, just chaos, chaos. That's the sea. But God was preparing a big fish. That's Assyria. Who was going to come down and swallow the nation of Israel. That's Jonah. But don't worry because after a very short period of time, that's the three days, Israel would arise again out of the ashes of that destruction and be a nation all over again and get a second chance to obey God. And that is the story of the book of Jonah. Wrong. That's not the story of the book of Jonah. That is not what Jonah is trying to illustrate whatsoever. That is just baloney. There's not a word of truth in that. The Bible is not allegorical. There's nothing in it that is allegorical. This is not myth. This is not legend. It's not a metaphor. It's not a spiritual story with symbolism. It's not allegorical in any detail or any way whatsoever. So if you're expecting me to allegorize the book of Jonah, you're going to be sadly disappointed. And you might as well leave and wait until you come back and get something a little bit more interesting because none of it's going to be allegorized. It's not allegory. And you know what the, the linchpin of the allegory argument for me is? You've got to ask yourself, what did Jesus say about Jonah? Do you remember what Jesus said about Jonah? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said, and this is going to be our text for Resurrection Sunday since we're in the book of Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was answering the, the crowds who were asking him for a sign. Show us a sign. Give us a sign. And Jesus said, a wicked and perverse generation seeks after a sign. And then Jesus said, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now I ask you this question. How did Jesus look at Jonah? As an allegory or a myth? Not at all. He looked at him as a real historical figure, a real prophet who really lived, who was really swallowed by a fish, really spent three days and nights in the belly of that fish, really was spitted up on dry land, really went to Nineveh, preached a real message of repentance, and the repentance of the Ninevites followed that. Now, all of the things that are held up in the book of Jonah as things to be mocked and ridiculed, Jesus affirms as historical fact. Because the skeptics say, there's no way that Jonah ever lived. Jesus affirmed that he did. The skeptics and the agnostics say, there's no way that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. Jesus said he was. Skeptics and agnostics say there's no way that he survived it. Jesus said he did. And then skeptics and agnostics say there's no way that a whole city repented at the preaching of Jonah. A mass repentance over a whole city? Can you imagine the city of Chicago all repenting at the same time? Does it seem unbelievable to you? Not if you believe that salvation is of the Lord. It's not unbelievable. But if you believe that salvation is of the Lord, then it follows God can grant repentance and faith to whomever He wants. It's not unbelievable at all. And yet Jesus, with the swallowing of Jonah, Jonah's historical figure, three days in the belly of the night, and a uh, belly in the, uh, you know what I mean, and the repenting of the city of Nineveh, all of that Jesus affirms as actual historical fact. Now, if that was allegory, then I ask you this, was Jesus' resurrection allegorical as well? It wasn't. Jesus points to a historical fact and He says, just as this happened, so will I rise from the dead after three days. And He affirmed it. Now, either Jesus was not privy to some modern technological interpretive scheme that you and I are privy to, or he was ignorant, or he was stupid, or he was just mistaken, or he was lying, or Jonah lived, he was swallowed by a fish, he did survive it, he went to Nineveh, he preached repentance, the whole city repented, just as Jesus said that he did. All right? 
So I hope that all of that sort of helps you to at least look forward to this series in the book of Jonah. And if you don't look forward to the series, at least you'll look forward to the end of the series. I'll always give you something to look forward to, either the beginning of a sermon or the end of a sermon. This is the end of the sermon. So let's bow our heads together in prayer and we will begin looking at the text of Jonah next week. Father, we thank you for your marvelous word. We thank you that it is so instructive. It all fits together so well. You have preserved it. You have inspired it. You have put it here for our instruction and our teaching. And we ask that over the weeks and the couple of months that is to come as we look at this book, that we would be able to glean from it all that you intend for us, that the Spirit of God would use these words and this information to convict us and encourage us and to direct our hearts toward you. We love you and we thank you for your precious word again in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.